0: So tonight we are going to be picking up topically in 1 Kings chapter 10, and we're wrapping up our look at the life of Solomon. We'll be moving on from Solomon after tonight onto the divided kingdom with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So Solomon is that third great king of Israel. Solomon was the first king, excuse me, Saul was the first king, not a good king. David replaced him, great king, human, flaws, but the one that God called and anointed. And then Solomon, his son, became king. And Solomon stepped into eternity after about 60 years, so he lived for 60 years, came to the throne probably around 20, and in 40 years, it's hard to match the efficiency and the legacy of how much he did in the human experience, building the temple, all the other buildings he did, the kingdom he expanded. By any account of how you measure an earthly king, he was without a doubt one of the most prolific and greatest kings that ever lived from an administrative, military Economic and wisdom point of view. So that's Solomon. We've been looking at him. We've been learning a lot from him. And of course, he his greatest legacy is he built the temple of God that his dad David had the vision for and the heart for. He built it and then he fulfilled it. But after he built it, we're told in the previous chapter that he kind of it says he did everything he accomplished in his heart that his heart wanted to do. So that was pretty amazing. Okay, so he did everything he wanted to do in his heart, but then like is it? What's he going to do after that? And that's where he really got into trouble. We know that Solomon drifted greatly after he built the temple and had done all these things. And what ended up happening is he just meandered. And the chapter after chapter 10 tonight, Solomon, were told that he multiplied wives. He multiplied pagan wives. So that's his great downfall. He, he, multipl- he <laughs> went for the wrong women, and he went for lots of them you know that just and he's not the first or the last to do that and the same with women and guys as well. So that was what he did. Those are the choices he made and that was how on the back end of his life he didn't finish strong at all. And the the women led him astray and so he built altars to their false gods Molech and Asterisks and all of these things. And it's a, it's a, it's a bad final. It's a bad it's a sad ending for Solomon the way it ended. It is. But in the overview of his life and ministry in chapter ten, we get a very famous story that when the Queen of Sheba came to visit him. So this is like at the zenith of his ministry, where he was just rolling as his this global economic juggernaut, like the guys that run the world right now, like that kind of a guy. He had it all going, and the Queen of Sheba came to visit him, and it's a fascinating story, and we're going to look at this tonight. And back in the book of Judges, we compared, we compared. A Samson to Jesus because they're both Nazarites remember that we did the Samson Jesus comparison it's like wow it's not kind of it's pretty unfair for Samson but we did it and tonight we're gonna to do the Solomon Jesus comparison because Jesus compares himself to Solomon so I'm not forcing it Jesus did it so chapter 10 verse 1 now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord she came to test him with hard questions she came to Jerusalem with a very unique ritune, with camels that bore spices, very much gold, and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all of her questions, and there was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters, and their apparel, his cupbearers, and his entryway by which she went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She's just blown away. This is the cover of every magazine, right? It's apparel. It's home improvements. You know, it's, you know, it's, just, it's like it's every magazine that the rich and famous like. It's all right there describing what she saw. Uh, employee, employer relations. Oh, it's everything. Plus, he had the ships with all the gold. He had his own private zoo. He had all this stuff. She is completely blown away. And so we read on. In verse 6, we read, Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half of was not told me, Your wisdom and the prosperity exceeds the fame which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are those your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he's made you king to do justice and righteousness. What a great segment of scripture. Really, if you think about it, it should get your attention. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus was going at it with the religious leaders because they went at it with him and vice versa. And they had rejected him. He had done so many signs, and they were requesting more signs. And they said, you know, we want to see a sign from you. And there in Matthew 12, verse 39, Jesus said this to these scribes and Pharisees that had rejected him. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Ooh, see, that's our key right there a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus compares himself to Solomon and says, a greater than Solomon is here. Now, an interesting connection between Solomon, the queen of Sheba, in Jerusalem, Jesus, the religious leaders, and the church in Jerusalem, is in the case of Solomon, this Gentile, that's a non-Jew, she came from the farthest place of the earth, Jesus said, from far corners, wherever she came from. It was a distance. Most considered to be modern Yemen is where she came from. But she came, and she came seeking. She's kind of like that. We don't use the term so much anymore. About 20 years ago, it was really popular in the church to say, oh, they're seekers. So you had seeker-sensitive churches. Services designed for seekers, not really to build up the saints, right? That kind of came and went. But the idea of a seeker is an interesting one because people say, well, like, I'm a seeker, and, you know, people go to Tibet to climb and talk to monks because they're seekers, something like that, right? The idea is like, you're seeking truth. I'm a, I'm a truth seeker. But David, Solomon's dad, led by the Holy Spirit, said, there's none who seeks after the Lord. No, not, not any. So the idea that you just wake up on your own and say, oh, I'm seeking truth, is actually foreign to the Bible. Because not only did David say it, but the Holy Spirit says it through Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans, that no one seeks after God. We're born in rebellion to God as sinners. And there's nothing in us that moves us toward God. We move toward religion because, as Solomon said, God has put eternity in our hearts. Yes, that is true, Ecclesiastes 3. But to find the truth, we really need the Holy Spirit who reveals all truths to us and directs us toward Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be with the world to point people who, don't, people who are perishing, the world, that the Holy Spirit going to point people to Jesus as their Savior and he's with the world to point them, and he brings them, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would bring them under conviction. He will convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, which are actually terms that we saw even in the text tonight. So in the case of the Queen of Sheba, she's a seeker, and she came to see if these things were true, as she'd heard, and she came to see, and she was blown away, and she says, it wasn't half what I heard is This is not even what I heard was half of even what it is. It it exceeded what I heard. The hype hype was bigger than actually what came to pass, which is usually pretty rare in the human experience. So this Gentile woman outside the covenant, because remember, Israel's in the covenant with God. God had a plan for Israel to reach the nations and to minister to the nations and even invite the nations to be a part of the feast and the faith. But they never saw it that way and they never really got it. But here in the story... This woman comes, a Gentile, and before she leaves, she's blessing Jehovah, the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, the God of covenant, the God who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. She is blessing him. So obviously in her seeking, the Lord was working. We don't really have a confession of faith for her, but really you might put forth a pretty good argument that verse 9 is her confession of faith when she says, blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you. It's like she's almost like a prophet is speaking about what God did through him for him. She's blessing Jehovah. So she's not saying, blessed Moloch and Ashtoreth and these guys. She's saying, blessed be Jehovah, which is awesome. Now, what's interesting concerning this with Jesus is Jesus came to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. And his mission was never really to the Gentiles. And when Gentiles asked him to do something, like the woman that said, even the dogs get the crumbs from the bread. He said, I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He still made exceptions for the Gentiles, but ultimately to reach the nations is for the church. So before he ascended to heaven, he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He also said, concerning the great commission, that you will go make disciples of all nations, that you will preach the gospel to every creature. So the ministry of one greater than Solomon being brought to the Gentiles is not that the Gentiles, like the Queen of Sheba, go to Jerusalem to find out the truth, but the church went forth from Jerusalem to declare the truth, which we are to this day. That right there is a tremendous contrast of just how the kingdom works and how God has worked, but it's a contrast between Solomon and Jesus because in Solomon, they came to him to see what he did, but Christ in us, the hope of glory, is we go to them to tell the, the world what he's done for them. See the difference? The distinction of how that works. And the wisdom of Solomon was limited to one person in one location. Jesus said, it's to your advantage I go to the Father, for when the Spirit comes, he will guide you in all truths. And the church can do way more because we're not limited to time, space, and matter as one person, but we can reach all nations and the different ethnicities and interests, and dialects that we all have, God uses that to make sure that there's a representation of every tongue, tribe, and nation before his throne in glory. So it's not like we're here waiting for the Queen of Sheba to come to us, but we're here going out to the world. That's what the church is. The church is always meant to be built up within, but to have an influence outside the church walls. And so there's a great distinction, but I do find it interesting. You have this king, gentile comes to him you have this king he gives us the keys of the kingdom and we go to the gentiles it's a good contrast but the contrast really takes off from there because as you look at this passage the first thing we'll really draw our attention to that was the broad scope of it the panoramic but the first key point i want to make tonight is in verses six and seven where she said to the king it was true it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me, your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame which I heard. So, from an earthly perspective, one queen to another king. She understands royalty, she understands wealth, running a country, she understands administration, economics, global stuff. She's smart. And she just goes, wow, like he's her peer in a way because he's a monarch, she's a monarch, and she's just completely blown away. Now, as we think about this, we think of Solomon, his words, his wisdom, because she talks about his words and his wisdom. And her eyes actually seeing what God had done through him and believing because she saw it and she was amazed. Contextually, we need to realize, like, when you look at the pyramids and think that's amazing, or we look at different historical buildings from thousands of years ago that are still standing, we just go like, wow, that's just amazing. But what Solomon did 3,000 years ago is insane. The temple, the wood coming down the Mediterranean from Lebanon being hauled 60 miles to 3,500 feet elevation, the quarried stones without the sound of tools, being hauled from the quarries, brought to Jerusalem, how they put these things together. I mean, it's just incredible. And then the woods that were used, that we saw, and overlay with gold and the artistic design. It is just the architectural achievements are just some of the greatest ever in human history. So she would have just been like, wow. And then she described his throne, well, the text describes his throne later on this chapter, made of ivory, the 12 lions all these things, it's just incredible, and then his words, so his wealth, and his words, and all that God had done for him, it's just, it's, we want to just kind of get this in our mind, that he's mind blowing in time, space, and matter, like we look at people, and go like, ah man, like just fortune 500 people, or extremely successful financial people, that control the world, like Twitter people, Facebook people, people like that, and they can just do whatever they want, and they they can buy their own rockets and launch them and go have fun in space with their friends. We're like, it was like how, how do people get that smart? How do they make that much money? Like, and we're like, it is impressive. It, it, is, it is, you know, like from a human standpoint, like that's impressive. Rockets aren't cheap. The, the ideas that people can come with and the creativity that they can come up with from their right brain, along with the metrics of their left brain, and we can do stuff like this, he did it. But then he's got the wisdom like this guy, if he lived in our time, he should just have an Instagram and a Facebook where he posts something really smart every day. Like the different Instagrams you get for smart money people. And they'll have Shaq, and they'll have Beezer, or whatever, these little quotes. And he's go, oh, oh, what a nugget, you know? Like he's, he's got 31 chapters where he's going, boom, 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 boom. Like, it's crazy. There is nothing like the book of Proverbs in human history. It's the holy word of God for practical living. It's amazing. And he wasn't altogether a bad guy. He's a pretty fair guy. And you're like, well, for a really smart guy, he does stupid things, he chooses the wrong women, and lots of them. So you're like, he's not that smart, you know, but like, so you feel like relatable to him. Like, yeah, he's smart, but he's not that smart. He, he, he had that wisdom and, and all this stuff. So you'd be like, wow. So now, from a worldly perspective, you're just blown away by Solomon. But let's think about Jesus. Let's think about Jesus. And actually, you can take all these incredible people on planet Earth right now that we think are really smart, great, brilliant, and beautiful, and all that kind of stuff. Let's put them next to Jesus. Let's think about Jesus. The words of Jesus. There's a reason the Bible is the most read book in human history. And there's a reason you can get lots of Bibles with red-letter edition. And there's a reason when you go to Catholic Mass, they only read from the Gospels as their main sermon. And it's the red letters. It's the words of Jesus. Now, I believe all the words equally. And I believe the Song of Solomon is just as important as the Gospels, the whole counsel of God. But I understand why they would do that. The red letters. There are denominations that put a greater emphasis on red letters than black letters in your Bible with the red letter Bible because the words of Jesus are incredible. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon. He took the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and he's expounded it for all humanity, how it's truly to be applied in God's grace for every generation until Jesus comes back in glory. How he treated the woman caught in adultery. How he treated the harlot when she cried at his feet and wiped his feet with her tears. How he treated the desperate man whose son throws himself in the fire in his seizures. How he treated the crazy men naked in the tombs, you know, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. How he dealt with people, one on one. How he ministered to a multitude. How he spoke to Peter, John, and James. How he spoke to the twelve. How he sent out the seventy. The words of Jesus are unparalleled and unmatched. Yesterday, I went for a walk with my wife at the beach. We parked over there by Seventeenth Street in Huntington, and we walk a block and then cross that that light that you have there. You know, to go out PCH. A lot of locals live in those, you know, those Huntington houses like three stories high and super narrow. But there's one that's like a little Buddha thing. I, hey, Buddha, what's up? I generally say hi to Buddha when I pass him. Yo, Buddha. There's a dog I say hi to too, so don't just hey, the dog and Buddha. But uh, I, I thought like, you know, like, the Asian cultures really respect Buddha. And they're really big on Buddha. And I, evidently, you know, there's a book of Buddha. I've seen it in the hotels, the five-star hotels in Japan. And those are words that are pretty important to a lot of people, in fact, millions. Of course, Confucius is the same way. Like, well, the words of Confucius. Muhammad had words that people will blow themselves up over. A lot of people have words that people think are pretty impressive and important. But the words of Jesus are the words of life. He said, you seek the scriptures and in them you think you have life, but they are that which declare me to you. He said his words are life. His life is abundant life. He said he didn't come to cancel the law of God and the Ten Commandments, but he came to fulfill them. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest collection of words in human history, without a doubt. The four Gospels give us the record by the Holy Spirit through the eyewitnesses of the apostles of the words of Jesus. So whatever wisdom Solomon had, it can't touch the words of Jesus. Because Solomon went bad in his fourth quarter. And by the way, we're in the fourth quarter of the year. I'm sure you figured that out. But in his fourth quarter, he went from bad to worse, and he fell apart down the stretch. Jesus went from glory to glory. Jesus had his face sent like flint toward Jerusalem to be crucified for our sins. He was fully triumphant on the cross. He finished, that's why he said it's finished, what he was sent to do. He was triumphant in rising from the grave. He's triumphant in appearing to the apostles in a physical resurrected body. He's triumphant in ascending to heaven, and he's triumphant in sending the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and he's triumphant in fulfilling every promise of his return. And can I get an amen? Amen. So where's Solomon in that? Where's his temple now? I think it's part of the Western Wall, I think. It doesn't matter, because that's not my hope and glory. My future. It's a cool thing to visit when you go to Jerusalem. but I mean, I've been to Solomon's stables. I've been there. I went to Israel once for a week. I saw his stables up there by Megiddo. I'm like, wow, look at this. Yeah, Jesus is coming on a white horse, and it says King of Kings. The words of Jesus are like his words. And the wisdom of Jesus, let us think about this one. I got bookmarks tonight, so you know I'm serious. The wisdom of Jesus. In First Corinthians, the church was running into this concept of, like, Greek wisdom. And the, the, the Greek philosophers looked at Christians like it's the village idiots. Like, oh, we're, we've got wisdom, and you, you follow a, a dead man that you say is risen. Like, all you have to do is look at Acts 17 with Paul preaching on Mars Hill to understand How the Greeks were. So, they're in that Corinthian church where the people had given their life to Christ, had to go to work and have Mr. Smarty Pants with his idols tell them about the wisdom of the Greek gods Neptune, Poseidon, same God, different names. But just in that background, this is what Paul said about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So listen very carefully to this, considering the wisdom, because she said the, the, the word, his words, she marveled at the words and his wisdom. That's what Sheba, the queen of Sheba, said about Solomon. So we're looking at the words and wisdom of Jesus. So the wisdom of Jesus could be in his words, and they certainly are there, but the, word, the wisdom of Jesus is the gospel message, which is a lot better than the wisdom Solomon gave the queen of Sheba. For the message of the cross, verse 18, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, quoting the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Mr. Smarty Pants, who sits in judges and jury of everybody, including us. Verse 20. Where is the wise and where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made Foolish the wisdom of this world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. So the cross is foolishness to Mr. and Mrs. Smarty Pants. Okay? And it says, so it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. So we're saved by believing. The wisdom of God is unveiled, and responded to, and initiated, and infused, and imputed through believing. Verse 22, for the Jews request a sign, (laughs) and we just read that text, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what is he saying there? He's saying that the gospel is the wisdom of God. The ultimate wisdom of God that goes beyond the book of Proverbs and anything Solomon ever said is that God so loved the world that he gave his son to die on the cross and save us from our sins. And by believing in him, we don't perish, but we have everlasting life. That is the ultimate wisdom over the universe. You read 31 chapters of Proverbs, and when you finish with the virtuous woman, say, "Ah, Lord, that is beautiful. And then go right back to John 3.16, because ultimately Proverbs is pointing to John 3.16. Because the ultimate wisdom, one greater than Solomon is here, that's Jesus. And the wisdom of Jesus is, I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. I'm going to rise from the grave for your hope and justification. And I'm going to come live in you by my spirit when I send him from heaven on the day of Pentecost. Until the trumpet sounds and I come back to establish my kingdom on planet earth. That's the wisdom of Jesus. So obviously that's a much superior wisdom than the wisdom of Solomon. Right? Yes and amen. Okay? So think about this now. Also, she said, I'm not, I'm not even heard the likes of it. Like, it's so much more better than what I had heard or perceived. Right. Which brings us to another passage of scripture. In the end of the Gospel of John, John is led by the Spirit and says, You could write books endlessly, endless volumes of books, and they wouldn't begin to even tell you the depths of the story of Jesus Christ. So, see, even what we have heard, what our eyes have seen and ears are heard. First John talks about that. We've seen and touched and declared to you this glorious gospel. And what the Spirit has confirmed for us, and the, the Bible that we have from Genesis to Revelation, and all, just the word of God, this made the cut with the Holy Spirit. And you know, you, there's, about, there's about 50 stories of Jesus, 50 different stories of what he did, between the four gospels, about 50. But everything he did was moving toward dying on the cross. But the Holy Spirit says through John, you could write endless books and fill endless libraries of all the things that Jesus did. So for us in time, space, and matter, gather here tonight singing these songs, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, and all this stuff. We don't even know the half of what God really has done for us. We don't even know 0.0000001% of what God's done for us and what he has for us. That's why it says, no eye has seen, ear, no heard. Those things he has for those who love him in the coming kingdom. And he said to Thomas, when they, when they said the Lord was hearing, he goes, I'm not going to believe that unless I see it. Remember what she said? I have seen and believe. And when Thomas, when Jesus appeared a second time... And Jesus says to Thomas, hey, put your finger right here. You say you wouldn't believe. And Thomas is like, whoa. And and Thomas says, oh, my Lord, my God, I I believe. And Jesus said, yeah, you believe because you've seen, but how much more blessed are those who, having not seen, believe? Ah, that's us. (laughs) That's us. That's us. We've not heard the half of it. We haven't heard .000 whatever percent of it. It's going to be all the glory for eternity. So before we move on from failing Solomon, isn't it good to just see like, again, like Samson was a failure, as a Nazarite, Jesus is the perfect Nazarite, yeah, Solomon was a great king, Jesus is the king of kings, and his words and his wisdom, when we come here in this place, and we sing, and we do memorials, and we do dedications, and we pray for loved ones leaving us and going out of state to new places, and we share this experience, and we break bread in there, and we have communion once a month, this is who we're serving. We're, we're not a motivational seminar. We're not a political party. We're not USC football alumni, night, which is not bad, but like we're the church. See, we're eternal and we're here. We're right around Jesus. Isn't that so awesome? Once all the political signs start going up every election, my wife's like, oh, gosh, how can they be up already? I'm like, well, don't even know what's the matter. The trumpet's going to sound soon. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but really, like, at 60, you're like, hey, it's the fourth quarter. It's the fourth quarter. We're going from glory to glory, and my greatest concern in life right now is how I spend the value of each day. Because it's the most valuable thing I have, and you too. And what matters to me most is if I, I'm, I'm losing a day today, I'm, I'm spending equity, I can't get back. Time. You know What matters, I ask myself every day, is how am I expending this equity to build equity in eternity? Because I'm expending, and I don't want to just waste my money like bad stock in the stock market right now, if you will. Because the real equity is my faith, and the value of my day, and how I spend my day, and what am I living for, and my faith, and the actions that follow it. How am I spending 24 hours with 100 days in front of me before it's 2023? And each day, Paul said to redeem each day, my question that I ask myself every morning. My number one goal is I look and say, how am I going to exchange the value and the equity of this day? I'm selling stock right now. I'm giving up something that I'll never get again. So I need to make sure how I think, talk, pray, act, and respond is building dividends for all eternity in time and eternity. Otherwise, I'm just wasting the greatest asset I have, time. We need to redeem the time, and it's worth asking yourself, whether you're young or old. But particularly if you're old, because for sure you know it's fourth quarter. Could be, could be the two-minute warning. If you're young too, you just don't know. But Jesus, a greater than Solomon is here, and that's who we're worshiping every time we gather here, and that's what unifies us when breaking bread in that gym and breaking communion here last week. That's that's what we're doing here. The second thing we see is happy are your servant, happy are your men, and happy are those who's. Your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Yeah, it's a great job. It was a great job. It was a good gig to work for Solomon in the palace. He's the smartest guy. He's that guy. And it's a great job. You're at work, and you're watching Solomon run the business, and he's just dropping, dropping nuggets in everything he's doing. He's just, he's, he's the walking book of Proverbs. He is the living book of Proverbs. Like, if you sat under Pastor Chuck Smith in his teaching, he, would, you know, the, what we call the Calvary distinctives, Chuck would put stuff out there like, well, you know, blessed are the flexible, they won't be broken, right? Like, stuff like that. Like, he would just say, "Like, yeah, and doesn't it stick with you? This, that one sentence has shaped my life for 35 years in ministry. Blessed are the flexible, they will for they won't be broken. Like, such a simple phrase. Well, Solomon's got 31 chapters of those when you work for him. Like, picture of Romaine back in the day following Chuck, and Chuck's like just talking and chit-chatting. He's just a boom, boom, boom. Pastor Chuck's book of Proverbs, that's great and awesome, and it's a legacy. But this is Solomon with the Holy Spirit, eternal word of God, book of Proverbs. Happy are the servants. So, like, it's a great job. You want to go to work right like you want to go to work you love your boss you love your place of employment great benefits you eat from the king's table and you get to hear him just share things and you go like oh honey I had this idea and I was praying about it and I couldn't quite put it all together with the property up there in naftali. and then suddenly Solomon said this thing to this guy just visiting from Persia I couldn't believe it and all of a sudden the ideas is connected and I have this business model now it's going to work that's the benefit of working with Solomon He's got better ideas than you do. And if you're thinking about ideas, and suddenly you hear his idea, that might be the answer to your prayers when you're praying the Shema in the morning like a good Hebrew, and suddenly he says something, and then your wife said something, because she's got good ideas most of the time, and the two of you, like, oh my goodness, this is a solution for this problem with our neighbor. We're going we're to resolve this, this vineyard sale, and it's going to work out fine, and everything's going to be good. That's what you got when you hung out with Solomon. And so it made you happy. You had a great job. I can't wait to go to work and hear what Solomon says this week. I can't wait to hear what he says on Monday. Solomon's always got fresh man on Monday. He's going to have something to say at work today. We have a staff meeting on Monday with Solomon. Can you imagine 20 minutes on a staff meeting with Solomon? Yeah. All right, let's go, everybody. Let's get back to work. He'd be like, oh, fired up. He's giving you Proverbs chapter 11 when he didn't even in the word of God yet. That's what it'd be like. To hear the book of Proverbs as it was being written. Wow. But, you know, again, she said to stand before him and hear him. Well, how about the church when we stand before the Lord and hear him? Or like Mary in the Gospel of Luke where it says Martha was busy doing all the work and Mary sat down and says, you know what? I'm turning the cell phone off right now. The iPhone's off. Jesus walked through the door. <laughs> Look, Jesus walked through the door. It's off. It's off. Put that there. Jesus here, like the grandkids. That's the way you should be with the grandkids, by the way. And if your adult kids are talking to you, that's the way you should be with them too. Turn turn the distractions off. Martha's like, oh, we got this. Oh, this that. Oh, we got this. You know, we got the potatoes going in the oven. We got this stuff. Oh, we're gonna get we got the tofu happening or whatever. We got the fatty calf. Like oh, all the girls. Oh, honey, check the girl. Like she's like that. And Mary's like, Jesus is he's just sharing and he's teaching. And she's just sitting there, just taking it in, just taking in everything. He's talking about, he's explaining, he's explaining, honor your father and your mother. He's explaining being content and not being covetous. And Mary's getting it, and Martha's missing it. Mary desired the better thing. And so when Martha's like told Jesus, hey, tell my sister to help out with putting the dishes in the dishwasher, Jesus goes, no, no, hang on, Martha. Martha. Mary's chosen the more excellent thing. What was that? Sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing what he has to say. Now, when we say that we have a morning devotion or a devotion time, what, is, what do we mean by that? It almost can be caught up as like Christianese, if you will, or a devo. Like Garrett used to always, Pastor Garrett used to always, like, I had a good devo. Like, like devo like 80s. You know, like you know, yeah, whip it. You know, like that, that kind of devotion. Like with the cone. It's like no, no, no. Devotion. It's short for devotion to spend time with the Lord. So, number one on the list every morning for me is to read my Bible. I'm about to finish Hosea tomorrow. I've been in Hosea for about five days. I finished Daniel before that. I, I have a journal. I write things in the journal. Most of my notes are on my phone now, but my time with the Lord still in the journal. I put, like, the wedding invitation to Kimberly and Brady's wedding that we did a couple weeks ago. That's in my journal. Stuff like that makes my journal. High school graduation cards make my journal. You know, things make my journal. I put in my journal. I tape them in there. It's my life with Jesus. I got a bunch of them. They'll probably get thrown out 10 years after I'm gone from planet Earth. They won't matter, but for me, they matter. It's God's faithfulness to me. The most important thing we can do if we're going to, Use our daily gift of time wisely is to seek the Lord and spend time in his word. To draw near to him and spend time in his presence. And I'll admit, Hosea is not my favorite book in the Bible. If you know much about Hosea, it just is what it is. Everyone's in trouble. (laughs) And they're all getting rebuked. But that famous verse, if you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. Was one of Billy Graham's favorite. That's in there. I read that yesterday, like, as a man soweth, so he reapeth. And as you think it, so you become. So I got a lot of that one. And even if I don't get a lot of it, I'm still in the word every day, like I'm eating cornflakes with banana. Like, just it's what we do. I feed my physical body, uh, eggs, whatever, I good whole wheat toast, vitamins, the chewies, gummies from my belly. <laughs> Probiotics, all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about. Everyone over 60, you should know what I'm talking about. Uh, But she said, Happy are your servants. So happy are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Happy were those men who followed Jesus around, rubbing the weed heads through the the kernels to the field, that followed him where he went and got to be on the boat with him in the storm. Happy were those guys. Happy were the women, as it says in Luke, who ministered to Jesus and met all those needs to take care of everybody that's been so well shown in the Chosen TV series, the women and how they ministered to Jesus. It almost gets lost in the the scriptures, but you see it time and time again. No wonder the women were there at the empty tomb long before the apostles were. They got, hey, early bird, early worm. They got the first fruits. They saw it, Mary, the rest. As we think about what she said, happy, If she proclaimed happiness and blessings upon those who stood before Solomon to hear his words, how much more for you and I, disciples of Jesus Christ, if you are one who wake up, seek the Lord, and have the Holy Spirit speaking to us, giving us things to think about, taking the scriptures, putting it in, and and giving resolution to unresolved matters in our mind and our personal lives, and suddenly this word is a word from the Lord. It's when it shapes, our, it shapes our worldview either way. This is right. This is wrong. Don't be confused. Don't be swayed by the world. There's a way that seems right to men, but the end thereby is death. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and this is the whole counsel of God. So if nothing else, it's truth, 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 and you have the right worldview. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and everything else is changing. They're moving the landmarks. They're moving the goalposts. Jesus is the same, and God is light, and him is no darkness at all. So just reading. 11, 12 chapters of Hosea in four days, they'll keep, keep you keep in your lane, like Autotopia Disneyland, right? You can't get, you know, like Autotopia has a start-stop, a start-finish. I went on the Autotopia, I think with all four of my kids, starting with Hannah when she was two, 30 years ago. You know that little Autotopia? You're going forward. And if you're not, someone's going to whack you from the behind, and they'll move you forward. You can get whacked from the back, you can whack in the front, you can go this far to the right, you can go this far to the left, but you can't get off track and out of your lane. That's what the Word of God does. It's like a little utopia. keeps us moving forward. Maybe a little kick from the Lord, good for you. And you just stay in your lane, and sooner or later you get out and you're like, wow, that was a, what a wonderful time with my two year old daughter Hannah back in 1992, 93, on a California visit from Virginia. It's a great memory. See, when we make time for the Lord, the Bible tells us that angels in 1 Peter desire to look into the things that we now have revealed to us in the glorious gospel and the word of God. We have a red letter Bibles and the action that should be the number one action of our day is to stand, kneel or sit before the one greater than Solomon who's going to speak to us from his word by his spirit. That's how your work day should begin and your Sabbath day too with the Lord finally the third thing we see verse 9 she says blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you setting you on the throne of Israel because the Lord has loved Israel forever therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness so she pronounces a blessing on him well she blesses the Lord and she reminds him why he's the king because the Lord put him there and the Lord put him there so what for justice and righteousness and doesn't planet earth It's good for planet Earth. It's good for humanity. It's good for the individual. It's good for everybody when there's justice and righteousness. She gave glory to God over Solomon's greatness. She did bless God, uh, Jehovah, for his greatness. And, you know, she reminded him, like, you have this incredible thing. So, again, in the world of men and time, space, and matter, his timeline, his generation, all of his glory— he ultimately has a responsibility to be a king on a throne and make good judgments. We read previously last week, verse by verse, where he built his throne. He had a throne room when he built all these things, the house of Lebanon, Pharaoh's daughter's house, and uh, all that stuff. He built a, a, a place of judgment where he would make judgments, judge and jury. He's the guy. He's, he would. That's what kings do. That's what queens do. They make the final say on certain things, and that's what he did. We're told that his throne was of ivory and overlaid with pure gold. It's impressive. It had six steps, and the top of the throne was round at the back. There were armrests on either side. Two lions stood beside the armrest. Okay. Uh, Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. The Holy Spirit tells us in verse 20 that of all the thrones ever built up to this time, this is the throne. I mean, like, this is the throne. Like the Queen of Sheba had a throne. She's like, I don't have a throne like that throne. This is the throne. Got the big lions, 12 little lions, ivory gold. Like, you walk in there, he's like, Oh, what's up? You know, he's, he's, he's the bling king. <laughs> he just, you and I would have been so intimidated to walk into his throne room. I told you, Bill Clinton walked by me when he was a president in Vermont in 1994, governor's convention at the Sheraton Hotel. He walked right by me, and I tell you that the three things that blew my mind with Bill Clinton—I was by the most powerful man on planet Earth because the president of the United States is generally the most powerful man on planet Earth. Three things: one, he's about to go before all these governors and all these people that were going to cheer him, and he did what all of us did—he looked in the mirror and he did this. But I was looking at him through the window. I'm like. Seriously, Bill Clinton did this. The Lord knows. Like, like, right, yeah, good for you. You should look good. Then he walks right by me, and I go, there goes the most powerful man in the world. And I got nervous. All the Secret Service, I'm in room service. There goes Bill Clinton, President Clinton with the Secret Service. Like, wow, there they go. And then he went in the room, and everyone's just like, that's what I remember, those three things. I got really nervous when he walked by me. He fixed his hair. I got nervous when he walked by me, and people would have died for him in that room. Their worship of him was unbelievable, and the Lord's like, you should worship me like they worship him. Actually, more than that, because that's pretty discouraging. Vermont, so the throne room is intimidating. When you go to a courtroom and there's a, a real judge and it's a trial, especially a serious trial like millions of dollars, civil or criminal, like murder stuff like that. that ser- I've been on a couple of almost jury cuts, and some of you have been on jury trials involving murder. So I've talked to you. I know. It's serious, like Judges are intimidating. How about the throne of Solomon? But alas, before we have a great time breaking bread in the gym, we need to remember who's on the ultimate throne. What do people say all the time? Well, you know, God's on the throne. When they tell you, I lost a trillion in the stock market this week, but God's on the throne. Our houses are losing value, but God's on the throne. My Bitcoin went boom, but God's on the throne. They're forcing this on us, but God's on the throne. What are you going to do? God's on the throne. Right, he is. So Solomon's throne was impressive. You know, it's like four or five verses. It's pretty impressive. Let's look at the throne of Jesus. Revelation chapter 4. John's in heaven, and he says this, after these things, he'd seen, uh, excuse me, chapter 5, after he'd seen the Father's throne, he sees the Son's throne, and he says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written, and on the back sealed with seven seals, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loosen it, and no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll, it's a title, earth, by the way, or to look at, behold, um, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. That's a reference from the book of Daniel, which are the seven spirits of God out in all the world. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he described the father's throne before that in chapter It's the rainbow. It's the emeralds. It's the 24 elders. It's the four living creatures. It's everything. And they're all saying, holy, holy, holy. But Jesus on his throne, it says in verse 8, that he took the scroll, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. So in other words, in the throne room, it's all about Jesus in the throne room. The, the The focus of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, it's on Jesus. And he takes the scroll they have harps and golden bowls, and these are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, and this is what they say at the throne of God. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed, us by, you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nations. That includes Yemenis, the queen of Sheba. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them, ten thousands times ten thousands, a thousand, said in the loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever then the four living creatures said amen amen and they worship him who lives forever and ever now it is unfair to compare that to solomon's throne because solomon's ivory and gold that's long gone it's not in any museums that i know of it went the way of all men the dirt from the dust that came the dust that returned But this throne is the throne that determines the hairs on our head, the beat of our heart, every breath we breathe, the purpose of our life, the glory intended, the plans and purposes, the talents and the gifts that God wants to use and redeem for his glory. This throne is where it all comes from. We're made by him and for him, and in him we consist and move and live and have our being. So our life is this great gift, and we only get one of them. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is at the throne room. He is there right now, and he ever lives and intercedes for each one of us in whatever we're facing, be it the mountaintop of joy or the valley of despair. He is with us in all of it. David said in Psalm 139, if I go to the farthest side of the sea here or all the way there, you will see me. If I go here, you're there. If I go there, you will see me. And he's for us. We actually sang in the song with Jeff. I'm really glad to play that song. You are for us. You are for us. You are for us. And Worship Generation Church, Body of Christ, on planet Earth, October 1st, 2022. We must know and believe that God is for us. We are created with purpose and meaning and destiny. But that destiny cannot be fulfilled until we surrender to Jesus Christ, the one greater than Solomon. And it cannot be fulfilled unless we're willing to wake up and redeem the time and get after it with all that we got the purposes that were intended for. And that is a life to be lived. And I read something interesting the other day. That's uh, from an old book, a long time ago, a Zig Ziglar book, where he said that most people, less than 2% of men by the time they're 60, are considered successful financially. They just don't understand setting goals, having visions, serving the Lord, repenting, being broken, walking in humility. And I thought, well, if less than 2%. Of men are considered successful by standards at 60 financially how many christians are are what percent of christians can be considered fruitful and prosperous for the lord when they're 60 or are we just going in circles or just playing church and religion see the one greater than solomon is the king of kings And he chose to compare himself to Solomon for all eternity, for all of us to learn. And I gave you the comparison tonight. What the Queen of Sheba said about Solomon, I took what she said, and I compared it to Jesus. And we know that's who we serve. So as we begin the fourth quarter of this year, I just encourage all of us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then get on with the things he has. And to redeem the time, the days are evil, for the king is coming. And that's why we're alive this day right now. In Jesus' name.